it's been a mess. And part of the problem is restoring a more accurate understanding of our history. This is episode 270 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Christopher talks with attorney and legal scholar Barb Cherry about common carriage. We often talk about common carriage as it relates to telecommunications. And this week, Christopher and Barb get into the policy, but most of us aren't aware of the legal history behind common carriage. Barb describes how its origins relate to the way it's applied today and how we need to consider the past as we move toward the future. Now here's Christopher and Barb Cherry. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis. Today I'm speaking with Barb Cherry, a lawyer and PhD in communications who worked for the FCC for five years, has 15 years in industry, but is now a professor at the Media School at Indiana University. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Barb, one of the things I've, I've already warned you about, and I'll tell the audience, is that um, you have an incredible amount of knowledge and you're very passionate. And so if this seems like it's getting a little bit too you know, friendly, I might poke you a little bit to get some of that passion up on the surface. No problem. Let's talk about common carriage, which is something that, that I, I've never heard anyone explain as well as you have. And, um, and maybe you can just start with giving us a sense of the historical origins of common carriage in general. Yes, common carriage is a special legal status that evolved over centuries, literally, uh, to reflect that certain kinds of businesses uh, engage in certain kinds of services that are considered essential. Common carriage comes from a body of law that we call tort law. I think it's helped explain to people is that when our Constitution was formed in the late 18th century, that wasn't the beginning of all the law. What's incorporated by our Constitution are these, all these bodies of common law that we inherited from England. And these bodies of law include what we call contract law, property law, and tort law. And tort law is that general body of law that has to do with if somebody engages in conduct or behavior that causes you damage, the fact that the law will recognize that you have the right to some compensation for the damage done to you. Tort law covers, for example, and it's different from contract in that, let's say you trespass on somebody's property and you cause damage. Under tort law, that's why you can sue someone to recover damages. What if somebody burns down your house? What if you're walking down the street and you trip somebody? Um, Well, tort law is also the origins of some special obligations in commerce, and one of them is called common carriage. And the basic idea is that if somebody holds themselves out to serve you by essentially moving things for you, taking something that you already own or have and moving it from one place to another, some form of transport. That's called common carriage and the fact that you pay them to do that. Common carriage in the beginning were physical things that we moved. And the early form of communication that was common carriage is now what we call the postal system. They carry and transport information for you, but in a physical form. Well, in the 19th century, when we had new industrial revolution technologies, new forms of common carriage were created created that were of the electronic form. But they moved information on behalf of people, like telegraph and telephone. So common carriage just simply are in the business of transporting things for people from one place to the other without altering what it is that you're moving for them. And when you you say that, um, you mentioned that this goes back to before the, the Constitution. So this is, I mean, people were moving things for a very long time. I often think about ferries, uh, presumably, even yes. a thousand years ago. Yes. 
And this was a firm body of law already by the Middle Ages of England, and it's part of what we inherited from them. So when the Constitution was formed, we already had bodies of law that our courts recognized as a place where you could receive uh, compensation uh, for being injured. Now, what it means under tort law is the fact that it's an inherent duty that you have in how you conduct your business. And so it's more fundamental and it's, not even, it's more fundamental than contract law. So the fact that a common carrier has these obligations is not because you have a contract with them, but it just comes with, it's part of their duties of providing this kind of service. So what are the duties of a common carrier? A common carrier has the duty to serve upon reasonable request, which means they can't arbitrarily refuse to serve people. They have to provide service with, without unreasonable discrimination, what that means is they have to treat similarly situated customers similarly. There has to be generally some difference in the cost to the company or carrier of, mo of moving something for someone in order to charge a different rate. They must provide service at just and reasonable rates. They can't just charge whatever they want. And they must provide their service with reasonable care. In other words, don't be negligent. The reason these duties are there is that it was considered an inherent form of fairness in commercial transactions. So these are fundamental notions of fairness in commerce that themselves have origins in our Aristotle body of uh, ethics. So it's very deep-seated, very fundamental sense of fairness in commercial transactions. This legal status, as I said, had its origins or was well-formulated in England by the Middle Ages and continued to apply even as with the rise of capitalism. And so with the rise of capitalism, as more and more businesses were done by contract, there were still certain entities or types of businesses that retained the tort obligation. That so, it was considered so fundamentally important to what they did. Common Carrier is one of them. And so one of the things that, that I've learned from you is that uh, the common carriage regime, um, this, this body of practices, um, um, is a little different from industry to industry. And so I'm curious if there's anything unique about how we apply this to telecom networks. Common carriage, there can be different types of common carriage. Um, as you mentioned, older forms included ferries, uh, people moving things uh, like by horseback. In the 19th and 20th centuries, we developed new forms of common carriage. They included like railroads, airplanes, buses, and then electronic forms with telegraph and telephone are examples. And with each technology, there's been some challenges about how the business is conducted. Now, over time, uh, as I mentioned, this was initially under the common law. And the, what's important about that is to enforce it requires you to go to court. So a person who is harmed by a common carrier violating one of the duties, tort duties I explained, the only way you could enforce it is you had to go to court. What happened during the 19th century with the rise of new forms of common carriage, the amount of investment that was required to provide these forms of common carriage, and particularly some of them that had to provide the equivalent of their own infrastructure to provide common carriage over, railroads had to build their own Railroad tracks, for example, they just couldn't use existing roads. And telephone and telegraph had to create new infrastructures in terms of wires and poles and things like that. The corporate form was the best way to amass the kind of capital needed to build these networks. And so we start having the rise of corporations in terms of number as well as their size, their, their amount of capitalization and the economic power. 
And the relevance of all of that is it turned out over time, expecting people to be able to enforce their common law rights against these companies in court became more and more impractical. By the end of the towards the end of the 19th century, both the states and Congress deemed the common law remedies no longer adequate. It was just too hard to enforce them. These big corporations had so much advantage in litigating in the courts. That's what led to the rise of enforcing common carriage through commissions. So and the commissions were the ones then, in other words, government now stepped in to help enforce these obligations of the carriers because it was no longer reasonable to, to expect the judicial system through complaints, uh, through cases filed by individual plaintiffs to be able to push back on the power of these big corporations. Yeah, I think back to the, the incredible work that Ida Tarbell did in uncovering um, the Rockefeller deals with the railroads. And it seems to me that, that when there's all these secret deals, the courts don't know about them. And so how could one expect the courts to, to, to stop kickbacks that, that no one even knows about are, are happening? Well, it turned out in the 19th century with the rise of corporations, there were two different strategies the states and Congress used to deal with them. One strategy was to develop industry-specific regulation, these commissions that had specific jurisdiction only in certain industries. That's one strategy. Another strategy was to de develop another, other bodies of law that apply to businesses generally, like antitrust law. The first antitrust statute by Congress was the Sherman Act in 1890. And that was passed three years after Congress passed its first law, the Interstate Commerce Act, to regulate railroads. So it was a two-step two or two-part strategy. Pass laws to deal with very specific industries because of how important they are to the economy and the kind of expertise that would be needed to keep pace with these corporations and their, and their behavior. And the other was just to prevent certain kinds of behavior under antitrust, to prevent certain types of conspiracies and restraint of trade, or to deal with certain forms of monopolization. So it was a two-part strategy. What was interesting, however, is that even those companies under industry-specific regulation were also subject to antitrust. So both types of laws apply to them. But these industries that had specific regulation also had such unique and in-depth problems. That's why it took an agency to have constant oversight because Congress couldn't possibly keep up with it. So to understand our regulation is to understand how, over time, we've developed a two-pronged strategy. Some industries require very special attention, why we have industry-specific regulation. And then in addition, we have more general business laws like antitrust and eventually consumer protection statutes, which are still more general in nature. And those, co those help pick up the slack with the rest of the economy. When you asked me a little earlier about the different industry-specific, it turned out the real breakthrough at the federal level was the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887 that created the Interstate Commerce Commission to regulate railroads. Well, not that long afterwards, in 1910, that law was amended by the Mann-Elkins Act and applied now to telegraph and telephone. So the first federal regulator of telephone and telegraph was the Interstate Commerce Commission. That precedes even the FCC. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, wasn't created until 1934. The reason for it was to have a commission now that dealt with all the communications because we had rise of further technologies like radio. So what they did was they copied the law that already existed pretty much in the Interstate Commerce Act for railroads that had been applied to telephone telegraph and just recreated it in the FCC and now moved uh, regulation of telegraph and telephone to the FCC. 
in the meantime, the 1920s, there were some radio acts to deal with the rise of radio, and then that was all put in one place. Right. The reason I mention that is people think regulation of telephone telegraph started on the federal level with the 34 Act, and that's wrong. It goes back further. Well, and, and one of the things that we found, and I want to just say we're going to turn this back to net neutrality in a second, but um, but one of the things I found interesting is um, working at the state level, I've often found um, uh, the big telephone companies, in my case, CenturyLink here in Minnesota, will say, oh, we should just go back and clean out the old statutes because we should get rid of all this telegraph stuff and in the, in the 100 years ago telephone regulation and because it's just unneeded and it's just cluttering up the the books but then you find out that if you do that the authority of the department of commerce of the public utilities commission it starts to disappear because everything was built on those original regulations and so i think it's important to understand all that stuff that was done back then has been modified and is, is still kind of was um, is necessary to have authority today Yes, the fundamental legal principles that that are embedded in common carriage law have been codified into statutes and then the method of regulation. Basically, the principles have always stayed the same. It's just the means of enforcing them that's had to adjust over time. So instead of having the primary form of of enforcement be in the courts, we've provided it uh, the first round of enforcement with these agencies to deal with the reality of the rise of corporate power and how much market power they have uh, with regard to individual customers. So So the means of enforcement from time to time have been modified to improve it, but the danger is to think that you don't need the core principles of common carriage. That's where eliminating the body of law entirely is very dangerous because the same reasons why those principles are there still exist today common carriage function is still a critical function in our, in our economy. And the notions of fairness in commercial transactions that underlie it still are relevant. And the rise of corporate power or the, the reality of the market power of these corporations still exists. So we still need the body of law. Given that this body of law, it's principles that go back centuries. Other bodies of law that are newer, that evolved afterwards, were all based on knowing that this other body of law, common carriage, already existed. So a lot of the issues that we've treated for centuries under common carriage are not picked up by other bodies of law. In other words, they're adjunct to, they're complementary to. And if all of a sudden you eliminated the common carriage or that base of regulation, all the existing law already have will not fill in the gap. Right. I think that's a, that's a key point. Um, but I want to I move on to what I think is a, is a hot-button issue. And let me just describe um, <laughs> how... Um, I think something that gets your blood boiling would be the way the media has shortened uh, a discussion of uh, Chairman Wheeler of the FCC's decision to put telecommunications under Title II in order to enforce common carriage. A lot of times the media just shortened that to saying the FCC has decided Internet is a public utility. What's confusing and wrong about that statement? Yeah, you're right. That really does get my blood boiling because um, it's just legally factually false. First of all, public utility is a separate body of law. It's a separate body of law that developed in the 19th century by the states. And what's at the heart of being a public utility is if the government gives you a franchise, which is the equivalent of like a contract, and says you have the right to serve this area, but then we're going to attach these obligations. And examples of public utilities include giving franchises to water companies, gas companies, electric companies, Well, it turns out in order to build infrastructures, 
telephone and telegraph companies were also public utilities under became public utilities under state law because of the need to build these infrastructures. So what it means is in reality common carriers, certain common carriers like telephone and telegraph were both common carriers and public utilities, but the reason for them being one or the other was for different legal reasons. Now, why am I? Why does it really get my blood boiling that the two are confused? Well, it's not only that the origins of this other body of law is public utility, which is separate from common carriage, but it's because historically many public utilities have been monopolies. They don't have to be. To be a public utility, you don't have to be a monopoly because your franchise doesn't have to be exclusive. But if you happen to have a franchise that's exclusive, it means you're the only one that can do it in that area or where you've, where you've been authorized to serve. Because many public utilities have been historically monopolies, people automatically assume then, oh, you're a public utility only because you're a monopoly. And then if people start confusing common carriage with monopoly, then they start carrying the same confusion further. Oh, you're a common carrier only because you're a monopoly. <laughs> and that's historically factually false. What makes you a common carrier has got nothing to do with monopoly or not. It's the kind of service that you provide. Are you transporting moving things on behalf of a customer for, a, for compensation? And so the press is doing us a disservice, but so are some proponents of net neutrality because they say the same thing. So I find people all over the place using the wrong terminology. The press, some supporters of net neutrality, many supporters or opponents of net neutrality keep confusing common carriage with public utility. And it distorts our understanding of the importance of common carriage law. Well, I think one of the things I find really interesting, and we can jump back into history for this, I think, is there is an idea that common carriage would not be necessary if you have competition because you could just choose the better carrier. Um, so maybe you can clear up why common carriage is still important, even when you may have competition and choice. And this goes back to understanding why you had common carriers as a legal status back in the Middle Ages, <laughs> because the same thing happens. Competition doesn't solve certain problems. And it's the reasons for, the, for that is this. What a common carrier does is they move something that belongs to the customer and supposed to drop it off at the other end. It could be a tangible physical thing, like railroads we think. It could be people themselves. It could be cargo. With electronic, it's certain information, the content of which originates with the parties at the ends. And what happens is it doesn't matter if there's competition because once you pick the carrier, that carrier, whichever one you pick, now takes possession of what it is they're moving for you. And that's the beginning of a unique form of vulnerability. You have no idea once you give up possession to that carrier what they're going to do with it. How do you know, for example, particularly when carriers interconnect with each other, if your message is lost or garbled, you don't know, well, which company is responsible for that. Early on what happened with common carriers is sometimes they would, the old court cases would say, is collude with thieves. In other words, think of somebody carrying your computer. And let's say a carrier, wink, wink, tell somebody, oh, why don't you, quote, unquote, steal it from me? Mm -hmm. Then I'll tell the customer, oh, I'm sorry, it was stolen. I couldn't deliver it. And then you agree with the robber to, for the robber to go and sell it, and then you split the proceeds. The carrier splits the proceeds. There's so many ways in which a carrier could collude or misbehave, if you will, in their common carriage duty and how they perform their service that's 
not solved by competition. Once you give up possession, it doesn't do any good to say, well, I could have gone to somebody else. I've already given it up. And so it's a repeat game problem. And that's why under the law, that's why the duties attach with the function. What makes you a common carrier is the functionality of the service. What is it you're doing? And also another problem we've had with the rise of corporations, another reason why competition doesn't help you is because of the rise of these big corporations or these big mass market, retail mass market offerings, is that these companies, they'll give you what are called contracts of adhesion. A contract is a standardized contract. You must adhere to the terms if you're a customer, hence adhesion. You must adhere to the terms if you want to get service. You can't really negotiate anything different in your contract. You either take it or leave it. Well, what's happened today is that these companies give you these take-it-or-leave-it provisions in their contracts, which include mandatory arbitration clauses and class action waivers. It means that to get service, you have to agree to these contracts that tell you you have no right to go to court even if you wanted to. You must go through arbitration. You may not organize with other people who have been similarly harmed and bring a class action lawsuit. And what's happening over time is all these companies – are all putting the same provisions in your contracts. So even if the market you know, appears comp- competitive in terms of being able to go to more than one provider, usually you can't find a provider that won't have those same terms. So you're stuck. Right. So there's no remedy if they misbehave, which is why we have this body of law to, to protect us be- beforehand. Yes. This is why you need commissions, because the court litigation, first of all, the odds were stacked against you already because they can withstand litigation Claims the the Cullum report. There's an old report of the Senate in 1886 that studied this whole problem with railroads and found that it was impossible even back then for the individual shipper to be able to stand up against these big corporations. And then in more modern times, with these mandatory arbitration clauses and class action waivers, you can't even go to court if you want to. <laughs> and when you add all those up together, your only remedy is going to be if you could have a commission with jurisdiction, who then has the power, the power to stand up against these big corporations on behalf of the public. Right. And this is this is something that, that Gigi Sohn is, is very concerned about um, and working on because there's a fear that um, that many, including some in the FCC perhaps, may be looking to offload their jurisdiction increasingly to the Federal Trade Commission, um, in which it would be harder. There's less specialized knowledge for the that commission to protect um, people that are um, working and in, in depend on communication services. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because here's something else to understand. The Federal Trade Commission was created uh, early 20th century, and when it was created, it was created to help enforce certain aspects of antitrust law to help protect customers. Well, in that act that created the FTC, the FTC specifically does not have jurisdiction over common carriers because at the time it was already known, you already had another commission that has the authority to look at that specific industry and how to deal with it. That exclusion of FTC jurisdiction over common carriage still exists today. Unless Congress changed the law, if you got rid of common carriage status for these companies today, there'd be no agency to fill in the breach. Even if you try to give the FTC the jurisdiction, one, they don't have the history of knowledge of how to do it, and number two, the FTC does not have the same powers as the FCC. FCC has rulemaking authority within its statute that Congress gave them, they have authority to create rules when they discover more problems. 
in the industry. The FTC does not have rulemaking authority, not like the FCC. So the Federal Trade Commission doesn't have the same kind of powers to deal with a lot of these industry-specific problems. Right. And I think, you know, one of the problems that, that we continually face is uh, an ignorance of these sorts of issues. And so we're condemned to hear uh, misinformation, um, confusion uh, from people over these problems that have been with us for more than 1,000 years. I don't think as just a lawyer, I would have understood all this. It turns out when I went back as a little, a little older student, when I went back to get my PhD in communication studies, this was at Northwestern University, Uh, I'm being trained now as a social scientist. The subject of my dissertation had to do with the liability of these carriers uh, under certain circumstances. And I had to go back and study a lot of the origins of these bodies of law. That's when I learned the true origins. And I found that a lot of what scholars call the secondary literature, a lot of things that have been written by other people about telecommunications history, I found a lot of them were actually wrong. They were wrong. And so part of my research in a book I've already published on the subject was trying to help people understand that a lot of what even we've been taught is wrong. So we either have forgotten it or some of what we've been taught is actually wrong. And part of the reason was that some of the people who wrote books about telecom history were not lawyers and they misunderstood and misread the cases. It was inaccurate. So it's been kind of a mess. <laughs> well, that's, that's how it feels, <laughs> frankly. Yes, it's been a mess. And part of the problem is restoring a more accurate understanding of our history. I've appeared on behalf of the Public Interest Advocacy Center up in Canada in proceedings before their commission, the CRTC, which plays a similar role to our FCC. The reason I mention that here is Canada inherited the same common law, bodies of law that we did from England. And what I found in working up in Canada is that there has been some similar misunderstanding about some of these bodies of law. But one advantage Canada has had over the United States is that they didn't have the same public relations campaign of regulated monopoly. And this has to do with the fact that the Bell patents were invalidated much earlier and competition started earlier. But here's the importance of that. This legacy of keep associated monopoly with the telephone system, that's quite U.S.-centric idea that we have that's been reinforced by an early 20th century corporate campaign of AT&T to convince the states and the federal government to go to a monopoly framework rather than rely on competition. It's the opposite. Because what happened up in Canada is that a lot of the, with the rise of competition sooner up there, is that some of these provinces, like our states, actually took over the telephone systems and they became publicly owned systems. AT&T didn't want that in the United States. So instead, they developed this PR campaign of regulated monopoly, and they were agreeing to regulation in exchange for being protected from competition. Why does this matter? Well, that old PR campaign, which PR specialists say is probably the greatest corporate campaign ever done, now AT&T is trying to turn that old PR campaign on its head to say to people, see, we were only regulated because we were a monopoly. So now that we're not a monopoly, we don't need regulation anymore. And that's a total misrepresentation of history. But Americans, because of this legacy of this PR campaign, they can be more easily misled. Right. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on here and help us to, to spread the, the good word, the history, and to give people a better sense of why this is so important. Yes, it's so foundational to um, these, these systems, these infrastructures are so critical to our economy and also with communication systems. They're so critical to our political governance. 
how we run elections, how we become informed as citizens. That's why we need extra care to make sure that we understand what's going on and not shoot ourselves in the foot, so to speak, by getting rid of bodies of law that are actually very foundational and are very necessary. Well, thank you for your hard work on this. Thank you. That was Christopher with attorney and professor Barb Cherry talking about common carriage and telecommunications. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. We want to thank Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle License to Creative Commons, and we want to thank you for listening to episode 270 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>